Welcome to episode number 55 of the Reformation Roundtable podcast. My name is Joe Stout, and I am so glad to bring you the audio to our Lord's Day worship service that took place on July 18th of 2021. Reformation Roundtable is a podcast and a production of Christ Covenant Church in Lewis County, Washington. We are a Reformed and an Evangelical Church, and we are excited to bring the gospel to the many, many hearts that need to hear it here in Lewis County. If you would like to join us for worship, go to lewiscounty.church, and you will find our current location and times of meeting there. Today's episode features a sermon by Andrew Hoy of the Olympia Bible Presbyterian Church, wonderful church in the Olympia area. If you live up in that in that uh, neck of the woods, uh, check them out. Pastor T2 Lero is the pastor up there, and Andrew is one of the elders. He brought us a wonderful sermon uh, out of 1 Peter, and I think you're going to be really blessed by it. I do have to make one caveat to the upcoming sermon, and that is... We had two kind of major fails, and I'll take responsibility for both. Number one, and the biggest problem, was that the batteries died uh, about halfway through Andrew's uh, sermon. So, unfortunately, you don't get to hear the whole thing. Uh, And the other problem was we had an input gain mistake that I made. And so all we have is the room recording. We don't have the mic recording. So it's definitely easy to hear, but not as crisp as it normally would be. So you do have to put up with a little bit poor sound quality. So I left the congregational singing in just as a, a way of hearing some of the songs that we sing. We love to sing psalms. We love to sing hymns. Anyways, that's enough for me. Enjoy the sermon. Enjoy uh, listening into the Lord's Day worship service. And join us. We would love to have you come and be a part of one of our worship services. Our meditation in preparation for worship this morning comes from Jeremiah 23, verses 1, 3, and 4. This is the word of the Lord. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, says the Lord. And then in verse 3 and 4 it says, "But But I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all countries where I have driven them, and bring them back to their folds, and they shall be fruitful and increase. I will set up shepherds over them, Who will feed them? And they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, nor shall they be lacking, says the Lord. You pray with me. Father, we are here this morning because you are the good shepherd. You have gathered us, your remnant flock. We ask that you would bless our worship of you this morning and make it fruitful so that the nations might be converted. We ask this in faith and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Please rise with me as we worship the triune God. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And also with you. Our call to worship this morning comes from Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6. Hear the word of God. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Now this is his name by which he will be called, the Lord, our righteousness. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Pray with me. Father in heaven, you have called us here because in your providence, you have sent a branch of righteousness to us. This branch is Jesus, and he is reigning and prospering at your right hand. King Jesus executes judgment and righteousness throughout the earth and rules with a rod of iron. It is because of Christ's merit that we are here, coming before the creator of all creation to worship in the beauty of holiness on this glorious Lord's Day morning. Your people have been saved by Jesus. Your people will dwell safely. Because Jesus experienced in full the most dangerous thing in existence, your full fury and righteous wrath over his imputed sin. We are here because we could never pay in part what Christ has paid for us in full. Thank you that we can come reverently yet boldly to your throne because of the work of your son Jesus. 
We ask this in the name of Jesus, who reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, world without end, and amen. Amen. Will you turn with me in your bulletin to our first hymn, Immortal, Invisible, God Only Wise. That's what we used to be. 
That's what we were. But now we find ourselves citizens and partakers in all the promises of God. God has fulfilled his promise to gather his people. And so, beloved, when we read from Jeremiah about the coming of the Lord of righteousness to save Judah and Israel, remember this. Ready? That's you he's talking about. It's not someone else. That's you. Jeremiah is saying that one day you will be saved and that you will dwell safely because you are no longer an alien from the commonwealth of Israel, nor a stranger to the covenants of promise. These promises are for you. Glorious. That is, for those found in Christ. Upon Christ, the chief cornerstone, all the promises of God have their yes and amen. However, for those who do not cling in faith to the grace offered through Christ, that person will find themselves crushed by this same chief cornerstone, which will have instead become a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. This glorious and sobering truth reminds us of our need to confess our sins to the one true God. So if you're able, please, will you kneel with me now? Scripture says in Psalm 23, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Will you pray with me? Father, we know that we, your sheep, have gone astray. You placed your name upon us, and we have many times this week, this day, this morning, these past five minutes even, squandered and wandered in our sin. We have been given these glorious promises, and instead of embracing them and living in their hope, we have chosen instead to believe the lies of our culture and our world. We believe the hero lies within ourselves, that all we need to do is trust in ourselves and we will find the needed gumption to overcome our problems. But this is a bald-faced lie. We offer nothing to you except our sin and our misery, misery, and you give us, in your mercy and grace, white robes of righteousness. We ask for forgiveness to you now, believing the promise that in Christ we have access by one Spirit to you, the Father, and that you will forgive us. We confess to you our own individual sins now in Selah. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus, and amen. Amen. Please rise for the assurance of pardon. Scripture says in Psalm 23, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. People of God, hear the good news. Your sins are forgiven through Christ. Amen. Will you sing? Uh, you can remain standing and turn in your bulletin to the hymn, Like a River Glorious.
Amen. And we're going to sing Psalm 8. This is a metrical song, and it's Lord, our Lord in all the earth. You'll find it inside your bulletin. Our prayers have been with you and they continue to be with you. 
And uh, like I said, it's a great joy to be able to be here and witness uh, and be a part of the fellowship. Uh, my hope and prayer uh, for our time today as we sit under the word is that we will be blessed and that we will receive what God has to say on us with joy. Amen. So uh, there's a question I get asked on occasion that when people ask me, they little do they know what they're about to unleash. That question is, what does it mean to be reformed? Uh, or what, what is a reformed church? Uh, the reformed tradition is one that is dear to me, and as much as I try to hold back, as much as I try to limit what I'm going to say when asked this question, I find it nearly impossible to contain myself when I ask this. It was actually just a couple months ago, uh, we had some guests over at our home, and the wife asked me this very question. And uh, before I, I started in, I paused, and, and she said, oh, don't, don't worry uh, about offending me. You know, I, I'm not easily offended, thinking that my pause was uh, out of concern that I would offend her. No, I wasn't concerned that I would offend her. I was af afraid that I would bore her. I was afraid that I would just continue going on as I have in the past, despite how hard I have tried to not do that. All that said, in my experience, uh, many Christians are either completely unaware of the Reformed tradition, uh, at least in comparison with other well-known bodies and traditions, such as the Lutheran tradition or the Methodist tradition, or they're greatly misinformed on what the Reformed tradition is. That they, they think that Reformed is simply a synonym for believing in predestination. Um, but for me, over the past decade or so, as I have become more acquainted with the Reformed tradition, starting out in the uh, young, what might be described as the young, restless and reform movement, think Mark Driscoll, if that name rings any bells, um, it, having started there and moved toward a uh, traditional Reformed confessional denomination, being in the Bible Presbyterian Church, I have discovered that reform means much more than what it is often conceived to be. Um, the Reformed tradition has a great wealth of teaching and, a whole, 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 and it is a tradition of great riches. And now you see, I've done it. You didn't even ask the question and I'm starting to get caught up in it. But I mention all of this this morning for a specific reason. Because the text we have before us touches on many of the doctrines which the Reformed tradition holds near. Yes, it touches on predestination and God's utter sovereignty over all things. But it also touches on the great solas of the Reformation, Christ alone, faith alone, God's glory alone. It speaks of the priesthood of believers. Uh, there are implications for worship. It speaks of the, the covenantal nature of Scripture. Uh, and it has much to say about the doctrine of the church. In fact, it is the last of these the church that I believe that this uh, passage is primarily about. The church. It's specifically in the text that we have before us. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 10 through 11. Peter is concerned to express that the church is a spiritual body with a spiritual calling. In other words, in this passage, Peter explains some of the distinctive traits that make the church the church, and he tells us what the primary focus of the church is to be. Children, there's a lot of you in here today, and it's great. I love seeing your faces. I uh, love that we, as God's people, are here under his word together. If you have not followed a word that I've said this morning so far, that is okay. But this morning, you're going to be hearing from verses in the Bible that explain to us what the church is. That is, it's not a physical building or something that happens once a week, but the church is the people of God. Kids, as you listen this morning, try to hear all the ways that these verses from the Bible uh, tell us what the church is and what the church is supposed to be doing. So as we turn to our passage this morning, we will see that it gives us at least five distinct features of the church. But first, before we get to that, we need to establish just a, a small amount of context. So if we turn to First uh, Peter, just chapter 1, back to the beginning, we see that this book, that really this letter, is from the Apostle Peter. The Peter who denied Jesus three times. The Peter who was notorious for opening his mouth and speaking before he had thought about what he was going to say. Uh, the Peter 
who even after Christ had risen from the dead and ascended and sent him uh, to establish the church, uh, who even then fell into a, a form of legalism and had to be rebuked by the Apostle Paul, that Peter, he is writing this letter, and he is writing to Jews who are in exile. That means that is Jews who are not in their home. They've been cast out of their home, and they are being persecuted. Uh, so verse 1 reads, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So Peter is writing to these saints who are away from their home, suffering persecution, trying to encourage them, reminding uh, them of their faith and the great riches that they have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is also writing to help them face suffering well. Though it's not apparent from the beginning, he doesn't leave the letter uh, with uh, talking on suffering. It is a theme that he returns to over and over again as he develops this thought throughout. And it becomes apparent that one of his major goals, if not his main goal of this book, again, is to help God's people suffer well in difficult times. But in the verses we're going to be considering this morning, he is specifically focusing on the doctrine of the church as a source of encouragement to these people. We don't know the exact nature of their suffering. We don't know the exact nature of uh, their persecution. We don't know if they were out, able to gather with one another publicly or if that was too dangerous. But what we do know is Peter in these verses is reminding them that they are part of something much greater. That they do not have just an individual salvation, but they, through their salvation, are united to a body of people. And that in that body they have great riches. And whether they are able to gather or not, they have a great calling to which they are supposed to follow. And it is for that reason that I titled this morning's sermon, The Church, um, A Spiritual People, A Spiritual Calling. But one more thing before we get into the, into the direct verses of, that we are discussing this morning. I, I need to address this word, spiritual. Okay? In Christian circles, it's very easy to sometimes gloss over this language. We become so familiar with it that we don't even really think what some of these words mean. Uh, but the, this word spiritual, not as only in my title, but we see it in verse 5. It, Peter talks about a spiritual house and spiritual sacrifices, and we also see that this whole passage is laid with spiritual imagery, temples, priesthood, living stones, holy nation, called out of darkness into his marvelous light, all sorts of spiritual imagery. And it, in all this spiritual language and spiritual picture, is, uh, as I thought about this passage for the past week, as I've been meditating out on thinking, what does this passage say? What is Peter getting at? One of the challenges of finding is weaving through all the spiritual imagery. For, because for each picture, for each image, for each phrase, I had to think, what, what is this getting at? What is the reality which Peter is trying to portray with this language? And so just a br few brief comments on what does it mean for something to be spiritual. Well, first of all, spiritual is not physical. Okay? We read in John 4.24, God is spirit indicating that he transcends the spiritual world. Likewise, we are going to read about stones and buildings. But these aren't literal stones and buildings, but this is a, these are spiritual stones, spiritual buildings uh, that Peter is talking about. And part of our task is going to be to figure out what is Peter getting at. Because while spiritual is not physical, spiritual realities are real. We're not just talking about invented philosophies. We're not just talking about ideas. We're talking about real, actual things. Real realities, if I can say that. Okay? Um, consider the truth of Christ's spiritual reign. You can't get far in reading the New Testament without uh, reading about Christ, who's seated at the right hand of the Father. Christ, who possesses all authority in heaven and on earth. So Christ has this spiritual authority, and we must never forget that this authority is a real authority, though we can't see it. Um, so likewise, as we that Peter talks about spiritual stones, a holy priesthood, these are real realities. These are real things that he is trying to convey to us through spiritual imagery. And in fact, I'd even go so far as to say that spiritual realities are the greater fulfillment of physical realities. Just think about the fact that Jesus is the temple. 
In John chapter 2, verses 18 through 22, that's uh, where Jesus famously talks about, I will destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, and everybody's mystified at what he's talking about. And then John adds a comment saying that he was speaking about himself, himself being the temple. So I ask you today, which is the greater temple? The physical temple that was built in Jerusalem? Your pick of which one? The, the last one destroyed in 70 AD? Or Jesus? Because the reality that the, the temple signified is fulfilled in Jesus, the greater temple. So likewise, as we see these realities which Peter speaks of today, priests and stones, holy nation, we'll see that the church is the greater fulfillment of them. They are actually the more true version of the thing that we see in real life. And the last comment is that spiritual realities do not preclude the need for temporal structures. Some want to take, want to take a doctrine like the priesthood of believers and do away with the institutional church. Uh, some of you have, may have met Christians who say, well, I don't really need the church because I have Jesus, I have the Holy Spirit. Um, I, I don't... Elders, weekly worship. Uh, you know, I don't need that because I, I just have Jesus, me and Jesus. But we see that is not the kind of spirituality that Peter is talking about in this. We see through chapters 2 and 3 that he actually gives quite detailed instructions for general earthly structures, such as government, this servant and master relationship, and for marriage. And then in chapter 5, he gives an exhortation to the elders of the church. Peter sees no conflict between the church being a spiritual body made up of a priesthood of believers who at the same time have earthly elders, earthly uh, leaders, which they are called to submit to and to have lead them in the Lord. So like I said, this word spiritual is crucial for understanding the text we're going to be looking at this morning uh, because it's all too easy for us Christians to speak in vague generalities Generalities and spiritual language without ever getting to the meat of what is being spoken to. So my hope of prayer is that we open up our, the word as we look at these words from the Apostle Peter, that we will be able to see the truth which he is pointing at in this text. So we have five characteristics of the church's spiritual identity and calling. From this text, five characteristics of the church's spiritual identity and calling. So first, the church is a people who are united to Christ in faith. The church is a people who are united to Christ in faith. So we see this in the opening words, uh, right there at verse 4, which says, Coming to him. That's spiritual language, right off the bat. We're not physically coming to Jesus. Jesus isn't here. He's seated, seated at the right hand of the Father. We do not have the ability to physically go up to Jesus and bow down before him. So there is a spiritual sense in which we are coming to him. And what is the nature of this spiritual sense in which we are coming to Jesus? Well, it is through belief. I mean, if you've read the Bible, read the New Testament, we know that belief is central to the Christian's identity, but we don't have to rely on just the general teaching of the New Testament to come to this. We see it directly within this text. In verse 6, we see that it says, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. And moving on to verse 7, it says, therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. So the church is the people who are united to Christ in faith, and we see that this faith is the essential characteristic of those who are united to him, and the faith is how we must come to him. And we see that as part of this, as the people are united to Christ in faith, that the church, remember our whole point this morning, is what is Peter saying about the church? The church is most fundamentally a people. The church is not a building. Buildings are great. It is a great blessing when churches can have buildings. It allows them to, to be established in the community. It allows them to have a reliable place to gather like we are right here for worship. But never mistaken the building for the church. And the church is not gathering. You know, we, we talk about going to church and that's totally okay. 
But fundamentally, when the Bible talks about the church, again, it's talking about the people of God. Yes, we are called to gather together on the Lord's Day, to approach Him in prayer and supplication, singing praises to Him and sitting under His word. But that gathering cannot be mistaken for the church, because the church is fundamentally people. And the church is fundamentally people who believe in Christ. This, this passage here has a lot to say, not just that uh, we come to Christ in faith, but it actually tells us a lot about the nature of that faith as well. That the nature of that faith which unites us to Christ. First, it shows us that the belief, that faith, um, identifies personally with Jesus. If we look at verses 4 and 5, we see that it says, Coming to him as a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also as living stones are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We see that we are part of this building of which Christ is the cornerstone. Christ is the central aspect of this, and so when we believe, we're personally identifying from him. Now, I'm not an, a, uh, an architect or have never studied architecture, much less architecture of antiquity, but I think I get the basic idea of a cornerstone. In fact, as we were driving down this morning, I asked my, we read the passage and I was talking about it with my daughters, and I asked, I was, I was surprised one of them actually knew this idea of cornerstone. Uh, but for those of you who've never heard this imagery or have no idea what this idea of a cornerstone, from what I understand, it would have been the first stone that's laid down in the, in the constructing of a building. And the fidelity of that building would completely rely on the placement of that first stone, because everything else would be based off of it. That stone set the alignment, and it set the trajectory for the whole building. So likewise, we, as, as living stones who are part of, of the, the building of the church, we are, we, it is based on Christ, and we are personally identified with him, and that is one aspect of this faith, personally identifying with Christ, seeing him as all-sufficient, and at the center, really, not just of the church, but of our lives as well, around which everything revolves. We also see another nature, uh, characteristic of this faith, which is part of the people of God who are united to Christ, is a belief, it is a, a belief that clings to Christ for hope. In verse 6 we read, at that bottom part, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. We see that this faith, the faith of the church, is a, 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 not just a, a dismissal faith, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus, but a, a, a faith that clings to Christ as its only hope because they know their, their utter desperation. That outside of Christ there is no hope. And so he alone is our hope. And it is by faith that we cling to him. And in verse 7, we see a final characteristic of that faith which marks the people of God. And in verse 7, read, Therefore to you believe, he is precious. True faith sees Jesus as precious. True belief sees Jesus as marvelous. True belief sees Jesus as Lord of Lords and King of Kings and worthy of all of our praise. Now, none of us have perfect faith. None of us have any of these characteristics perfectly. But this is the, the, the general kind of faith which should mark the people of God as imperfectly as it may be and as much as we may be growing in it each and every day, uh, just as the man who cried out, I believe, but help my unbelief. So this type of faith which Peter describes here is the type of faith that should be marked in the church and that we should be striving after it as well. Now, so far I've said the church is the people, the people who believe in Christ, and as a Presbyterian, I really wanted to talk about and their children, but I'm trying to cut some things out so we don't go too long, so I'm going to skip that. But if you want to talk about it afterwards, why we baptize babies, I'd love to. I'll probably chew your ear off, though. So, um... But as a Presbyterian, I believe that the church is those who believe in their children. Um, so the, the final part of this first characteristic, which is the church of the people are united to Christ in faith, is that we're united to Christ. 
And we see that this is really what Peter's driving at. Remember, he's speaking to a persecuted people. He's trying to encourage them in difficult times. And he's showing them that as they are united to Christ and through belief and see him as the center of all things, part of that identifying, identifying with him is identifying with him in his suffering and his rejection. But not only his suffering and rejection, but in his status before God. Verses 6 through 8, we see this, what originally I was reading, it almost felt like a break, or like a, a, a him restating what he had already said in verses 4 through 5. But I, what I really realized is he's, he's pressing in this idea of Christ being the cornerstone, Christ being who the church identifies with, because he's showing how Christ was rejected by his own, the cornerstone that was rejected, rejected by man. But then he also points out that he's rejected by man, but chosen by God. So just as we, in this life, will be rejected by man, so we too, who are united to Christ in faith, are chosen by God. And think of the comfort that is. You know, the, these truths that we know, they're so easily forgotten, especially in distressing times. But when we take the time to let our times meditate on the riches that we have in Christ, even in difficulties, we see what an infinite treasure we have because in Christ we are accepted by God and that surpasses anything that this world has to offer. So let us never forget that it is by faith and faith alone that we come to Christ and are united to him and that there's no other way by which man may come to God. And if you're wavering in your faith today, I want you to remember that it is not your faith that saves you, but it is the object of your faith, Jesus Christ, that saves you. That said, if you are challenged by what Peter has to say about faith, do not put off repenting. Do not be afraid to come before God and confess uh, how frail you have been in your faith, but repent. Acknowledge to God your shortcoming. Acknowledge to God your sin and cry out to him that he may uh, be merciful to you and can strengthen you in your faith all the more. So, first, we just finished the first characteristic of five of the church's spiritual identity and calling, which is the church is a people who are united to Christ in faith. So number two, the church is a people chosen by God. This is the Reformed Church. I am Presbyterian elder, you know, comes with a territory talking about election, predestination. We see here, but I'm not just bringing this in because I'm a Presbyterian, because this is a Reformed church, but it happens to be in the text that we have before us today. Because in verse 9, Peter points out the fact that you are a chosen race. You know, he doesn't fully develop a doctrine of election or predestination in this, in this text, so neither will I. But I want to point out that this idea of election is essential, as you read through the New Testament, to the church's identity. It seems like any time that Paul is talking about the church, it's not long after or before that you can see that he talked about the doctrine of election, of predestination. For those of you who don't know what I mean by this, I mean simply this. That God has of the world, of, of a lost and fallen world, chosen some to redeem for himself. So chosen some to salvation as his precious people for himself. And there are two basic views of election. One says that God chooses us based on foreseen faith, that God, from all his wisdom in, the, in, in eternity past, looked at all of mankind, looked for those who would say, I believe, I believe. And he said, I pick you then. And he looked for and he someone else who would say, I believe, I believe. And he said, well, then I pick you. And so I want to describe election like that. There are others who describe that um, God chose us for his own reasons. God chose some according to the infinite counsel of his own holy will, reserving to himself to choose some and not choose others. It is the second view that I would hold, and I, I believe would be the doctrinal position of this church. And I think we see very clear grounding for that if we look at the first couple chapters of Ephesians. So if you would like to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1, we're going to uh, read some verses there. 
to see, I think, one of the most clear uh, statements of election that we have in scriptures. So for Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3, we said, Blessed be God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And just as he looked, chose us in him when, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having what? Predestined us to adoption as sons of Jesus Christ to himself. Why did he predestine us? This is a, the crucial piece. According to the good pleasure of his will. Let's read that one more time. Why did God choose some to salvation? According to the good pleasure of his will. Not because he foresaw faith in some, but because he is a perfect, righteous, and holy God, and he does what he sees fit. And there's no other being in all of existence who is better fit than him to make that choice. Amen. And for those who would want to argue that it's based on foreseen faith, they will have to reckon with Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, which demonstrates that even faith is a gift of God. Now, people, people of God, I don't, I don't want to pretend that the, 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 the doctrine of election or predestination is an easy doctrine. It is an easy teaching of Scripture. I might even go so far to say that if, if you've never really wrestled with it, if it's never kind of shaken you or, or made you ask deep questions, then maybe you haven't given it the thought that it's due. I can't adequately address all those things this morning, but Peter actually gives us a hint in the direction of one way to wrestle with some of the difficulty of this biblical teaching. So if we look at verse 8, going back to uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, turning back to, looking back at verse 8, we see that it says, they stumbled, being disobedient to the word, so it's talking about the Jews who rejected Christ, they stumbled, being disobedient to the word, they were guilty of rejecting him, to which they were also appointed. ESV makes this a little bit more clear when it says, instead of as they were appointed, as they were destined to do. Who destined these people to reject Christ? God did. God is sovereign over evil, and that is not an easy thing to accept. But what we see here in verse 8 from Peter is a very important lens through which we understand God's election and God's sovereignty, which is that though he ordains everything that ever has come to pass, there's not a stray atom in the universe. Men are still responsible for their actions. And if you say, well, God made me do it, how am I responsible? Well, that's not the right way of looking at it. Okay, because the, the Bible is abundantly clear that men are responsible for their actions and that God is fully sovereign over all things. And how do these two things coexist? It seems to our minds that it's one or the other. It's both. Ask me how. I've read the greatest theologians on this. The vast majority of them at least the good ones, say, accept it. It's what God's word says. God's word says this, and God's word says that. We believe what God's word says, regardless of whether we can make perfect sense of it or not. Humans are responsible for their actions, and God is completely in control of everything that has ever happened or will ever, ever happen. And that is just one basic way of processing and beginning to think about this fact that God has chosen a people for himself, as difficult as it may be. And beyond this, some, it's very easy to get caught up on, on worrying about this doctrine or articulating, or maybe you may even be, met someone who likes to beat others up with this doctrine. I've definitely met plenty of that type. But what we can oftentimes miss is the ultimate purpose of election, which is that God is drawing a people to himself to make them holy. Verse 10 points to this reality. Who were once were not a people, but now are the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. This is an allusion to the story of the prophet Hosea, 
Every commentary I read on this side, I think there is something particularly in the language, there's just too strong of parallels between uh, the verse 10 and the language in Hosea, that it's evident that Peter has this in mind. And for those of you unfamiliar with the story of Hosea, Hosea was the prophet who, who uh, God had brought him an unfaithful wife, who he married and she ran off, and, and Hosea is called to redeem her. Not because of anything within herself, but because, because of his love for her and because of God's purposes in that. And we see that uh, this is a picture of God's choosing us despite not meriting it. Actually, de despite de demeriting it. So the purpose of election is God, he, he's bringing a people unto himself to make beautiful, to make holy. And to you who are here this morning, you're probably at very, various places in here. Some of you probably familiar with some of this stuff that I said about election and predestination. Some of you have never heard it before and may be horrified. But I don't want anybody in here to lose sight of the power and purpose of God's electing love. Predestination should not be a, a belief, a biblical teaching that puffs anyone up, but it should humble us and exalt God. His mercy, His grace, and our utter reliance upon Him in all things. So we've seen that the church is a people who are united to Christ through faith. We have seen that the church is a people chosen by God. We also see in this text that the, the church is a people brought into the family of God. Verse 5 reads, You also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house. In verse 9, gives us the description of, you are a holy nation. So let me be direct. This passage demonstrates that there is only one people of God. Some theologies teach that there are two peoples of God, Israel and the church. And I'm not here to step on people's toes. Okay? And some of you have no idea what I'm talking about, and some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, and, and, and that's okay. I'm not going to de develop that this uh, other system of reading scriptures which says that there are two people of God. But I'd like to say, if this is a question you're wrestling with, or, or not, what we see clearly here is that the Bible from beginning to end, from Genesis chapter 1 to the end of Revelation, we see that God has one people. Specifically, Israel and the church are not two separate entities, but they are one people of God. Consider this. All the imagery in this passage is very Jewish imagery. It's very much Israel Im imagery of Israel. But to who is Peter applying all this imagery? He's applying it to the church. Who is the nation of priests? He's not pointing back to Israel, but he's pointing to the church. Who are the living stones? The church. So we see with each one of these images, Peter is showing that the church is the true possessor of all these promises to Israel. Not that they replaced Israel, but they were the continuation of Israel. So we still have Jews among the church today. The, the, the Gentiles, us, most of us, I, we may have some Jews among us here, ethnic Jews among us here. But we are all, most of us are Gentiles. We are grafted into the people of God to use the language of the Apostle Paul. And um, so we see that the, the church is uh, brought into the family of God, that there's one people of God. So yes, God gathers his people out of the local church. So we're, those of us in here who are united to Christ through faith, we are part of his family. But not just here in this place, but scattered uh, connected to all true believers around the world, but not just all true believers around the world are we united to. We are, we are united to all, all believers through history past and in the history future as well as one people of God. And I think that was one of the things that Peter really wanted them, these uh, Jews in exile to be encouraged in, because even if they were gathering, I doubt that under persecution, they were able to have much fellowship with outside, maybe even those in their, in their tight-knit area. But to be reminded of this great identity, you are a part of a great people, the people of God, throughout all the world and throughout all history, could be a source of great encouragement. 
But this also is, uh, we should take note of this as we read our Bibles as well. As we're reading the Old Testament. Don't read the Old Testament as, you know, something back then or for a, a different people. Like, oh yeah, yeah, that's Old Testament stuff. I'm just a New Testament Christian. I don't really, you know, the Old Testament, that's just all antiquated stuff. No, we need to read the Old Testament and identify with Israel as we read it. Now, I'm not saying that there's no things, uh, that everything in the Old Testament is still applicable today. There, there is some level of discontinuity. Some things did change in the coming of Christ, but that's because Christ fulfilled certain things. There were things in the Old Testament which were signs pointing to Jesus, so that once he came, as I mentioned earlier, he is the greater fulfillment, for example, of the temple. You don't need a temple because the greater temple has now come. And if you have any disagreements with me on this point, see Joe. He will answer all your questions. Okay. Um, so, moving on. The, the characteristics of the church, we saw that the church is a people united Christ through faith. The church is a people chosen by God, and the church is a people brought into the family of God. And now we're moving from what, really, each one of those could be described as the, um, the nature of the church, or the identity of the church, or as I call it, the spiritual, uh, spiritual body. To moving on to the spiritual calling as a fourth characteristic of the church, which is the church is a people um, created to worship. So fourth characteristic of the church is the church is a cre people created to worship. Verse 5 reads, you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices accepted to God through Jesus Christ. In verse 9 we read, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. Listen, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So we're making a transition from who the church is to what the church is to be doing, from their spiritual identity to our spiritual calling. And we see that part of our spiritual calling is that we are to be a people who are created to worship God. So where am I getting this in the text? Uh, well, first of all, Peter uses this imagery of priests. What do priests do? Well, priests are those who are set apart to daily bring the people before God. With a, a sort of direct access to God. I, I, I teach the youth at our church, and in our catechism, it talks about Christ being the prophet, priest, and king. And when I come to describing the difference between a prophet and a priest, we say a prophet is one who brings the word of God to the people of God. And the priest is one who brings the people of God to God. And so what we see is, in the Old Testament uh, mosaic system, we see that priests were the ones who mediated between us and God, bringing sacrifices on, our behalf, on the behalf of the people. But now we get to bring our sacrifices directly to him. And that's why we would not use the language of priests to describe our pastors or our elders. Because we don't need our pastors and elders to mediate between us. Yes, we can go to them to prayer, just as we to pray for us, just as we can go to others. But we have direct access to God through Jesus Christ as priests. But more specifically, priests. What is their primary duty? What are, what are what is the business of priests? They're making sacrifices, and this is exactly to what Peter directs us when he says to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. And it was this phrase, spiritual sacrifices, which originally got me on this whole uh, thought of, what is this spiritual language, in addition to all these spiritual images? And well, one thing we need to know is this idea of a spiritual sacrifice, just to clear things up at first, is this is not a propitiatory sacrifice. That means this is not a, a, a sacrifice of appeasement. This is not a, a sacrifice which cleanses of, the, of our guilt or allows us to, to stand before God as holy and righteous. Only Christ has done that. And that's why in the book of Hebrews, he's, he's spoken about it at length, about our being our great high priest. Because Christ alone offers propitiation. Christ alone can bring us as holy and righteous before God. And so we would reject the view of communion uh, taught in the Roman Catholic Church, which says that each time the communion takes place, Christ is being re-sacrificed. 